at the time. I needed to be like, no, we're splitting the rent, we're splitting the food, we're splitting everything. And in part, looking back, I'm like, that was really valuable for me as a female to be able to meet that moment of being able to contribute financially in that way. And also looking back, I wasn't taking into account all of the invisible ways that we support each other's successes and failures. And doing a partnership like yours and mine, I love so much that there's no part of my being that feels like it can go into blame if something doesn't happen, for example, in this realm financially. Welcome to The Art of We, the podcast where we explore how committed partnerships can be potent vehicles for fully delivering our gifts to the world. Hi, I'm Krista Vanderveer, a seasoned consultant and executive coach. And I'm Dr. Will Vanderveer, a leader and educator in integrative mental health and wellness. As husband and wife and business partners, we keep learning that the key to maximizing our authenticity and impact in the world lies inside the health, security, and depth of our relationship. On this show, we'll pull back the curtains to share lessons, insights, and practices from our own marriage and professional careers that help us thrive. If you're a leader, founder, or overachiever, and you want to leverage your relationships for personal and collective growth, then you're in the right place. Hello, and welcome to the Art of We podcast, episode number 38. Today, we're going to talk about finances and how couples or how we do our finances as a couple. Money, 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 honey. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fun topic. I've heard that sex and money are the two biggest conflict areas Mm. for couples. Makes sense. And also house remodeling or building. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we've talked about that before. Yeah. Luckily, we're done with that pretty much at this point. Yeah, and we did an amazing job, I got to say. We really did, especially yeah. being you know, somewhat newly married. True. Well, I think it was because we have a lot of alignment through a lot of conversation about finances and, and sex, so that helped a lot. <laughs> we also have a lot of agreements in place that we really relied on. If you've listened to our podcast before, a lot of our early podcast episodes are about our agreements and... I totally believe in the power of agreement. It's just freaking awesome. So anyway, back to money, honey. Yeah. So I guess the beginning of our conversation about money predated uh, whether or not to have a prenuptial agreement. But we thought we would start the conversation about prenups because that's where sometimes things start to get a little uncomfortable between people who are dating. And the rubber can hit the road kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) People are dating and planning on getting married. Yeah. And this is not to say that we think prenups are bad or wrong, but we decided not to do one. And we feel good about that for the reasons we're going to talk about. Some couples decide to do that and they can choose that. And, you know, anybody who's a consenting adult can agree to a lot of different things. So there's nothing wrong with that. But for our purposes, we felt like even though there was a little bit of a difference between the assets, let's say, that we came into our relationship with, it was important to us to start off on the foot of equal buy-in to our financial pathway and success. So I had come out of a long-term relationship where I agreed in my 20s to a prenuptial agreement with the person I married. and The person you married the first time. The first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So Chris is my second wife, if you haven't listened to previous episodes. Yeah. So in that situation, I learned a lot about what it feels like to be in a relationship on a prenuptial agreement that I consciously chose and agreed to. Mm. And I didn't want to have that experience again. And it was just a different kind of experience for me. Now, without going into a ton of detail, I wonder if you could share just why you would not choose that again based on your experience. Obviously, like you said, I do want to honor that everybody has a totally different, unique financial setup, financial history, so many different layers there. So just in relationship to your private personal experience, what did it create inside of the marriage that wasn't ideal for you? I think the central problem for me with my experience of a prenuptial agreement was not having the same amount of wind in the sails between me and my then wife for developing a cohesive financial plan for the future. That makes a lot of sense. Because, yeah, from her perspective, her future was assured with her nest egg. And, you know, I didn't perceive that mine was unless I stayed with her. So it was a asymmetrical, difficult thing to deal with that I didn't want to deal with again. Right. It's interesting because when I think about a prenuptial, if I were to agree to one, and let's say my partner had the bulk of the wealth prior to getting married, and we and I signed a prenuptial, I mean, I think that the future planning would be something for sure that we would navigate. But also, I would just feel like there would be a power dynamic that is operating in me on a probably subconscious level of have and have not. like. They yeah. have and I have not, and thus they get to make more decisions or they're more, they have more power in the decision-making or some sort of unequal relationship dynamic that for me just wouldn't be very fun. Absolutely. I mean, in hindsight, I would have made a different choice if I knew then what I know now about that power dynamic. I think you summed it up well. Mm-hmm. So I think for us, like I actually don't remember all the conversations that we had. But I think that what I remember is really wanting to have this kind of clean slate that you were talking about before, but also to really both of us to take full responsibility for the successes and failures in the financial domain. So it's not like if I make X amount of money, it's my money, or if you make X amount of money, it's your money. But we really wanted to be fully in in a mutual way where there can't be blame and there can't be, I just did this by myself kind of mentality. Right. hundred percent. I like it the way we set it up. (laughs) You like the way we set it up? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's really cool because, you know, in my, one of my first serious relationships when I was younger, it was in my twenties, for whatever reason, my background, my own value of myself, my own relationship with male, female dynamics, I needed to split everything to the penny with my partner, everything. Even though he earned more money than I did at the time, I needed to be like, no, we're splitting the rent, we're splitting the food, we're splitting everything. And in part, looking back, I'm like, that was really valuable for me as a female to be able to meet that moment of being able to contribute financially in that way. And also looking back, I wasn't taking into account all of the invisible ways that we support each other's 
successes and failures. And doing a partnership like yours and mine, I love so much that there's no part of my being that feels like it can go into blame if something doesn't happen, for example, in this realm financially. 100%. Yeah. And I think this is also a place where women who take care of children or manage the household, you know, who function as homemakers often get really screwed over in divorce if they're not honored for their contribution. I think for us, the emphasis on team and acknowledging that the success that anyone has is the success that we're all having is so important to us that it wouldn't make any sense to organize our finances separately or hold something aside or do any of those strategies. Yeah. It really calls all of my parts forward in a beneficial way when I know that I have responsibility. So that leads us to being married. And as you just mentioned, we share all of our money. Yep. Which I think we've gone through a journey of learning how to spend money in a way that's inside of both of our values because we don't have the exact same values. And there's a way that when we're navigating those conversations around smaller big ticket items, I think coming back to understanding how we're supporting each other's success is really important. One example is some different masterminds that you've been in, which I think have been hugely impactful on our success in so many different ways. Meeting people, getting coaching, getting advice. And so those are really easy to support, even though I may not go into a mastermind in the same way. But then there's things that are really highly in my values that I feel like that you're really supporting and in part because it's going to fuel my success and our success as a result. Right. So inherent in sharing all of our finances is the agreement to support each other's values in a way that feels fair and equal. And I'm curious if you feel like there's any drawbacks to, for example, I think some couples have a policy of sharing all their money, but then they each have a little discretionary account where they, it's just their money and they can do whatever they want and not seek out agreement or buy-in from their partner for that. Do you ever wish that there were funds that you didn't need to talk with me about before buying something or choosing something? Such a great question. I honestly, I don't feel like I do need that because I feel like if I need something or want something, the edge isn't for me to go and just buy it. The edge is to be in conversation with you about it and the growth edge of being like, here's here's what I think is really important. Here's why. And it's just so much easier just to have my own little nest egg and be like spending it without some sort of inclusion or accountability. And it's not like we run every single thing by each other though, either. That's great to hear. I, I feel the same way. I feel like there's so much trust and care for each other that there's not a need for there to be some kind of separate thing going on. Nice. You know, there have been times where I'm just going to use the example of you because you're the other person than me, but (laughs) where you've come to me and we've been talking about something and I've kind of needed to understand how we benefit from it, not just you benefit from it (laughs) in order to get back and fully align, you know, 
Like I think I think mm-hmm. the alignment piece is really important, especially with big ticket items. Absolutely. Well, I think that there are a lot of different maybe frameworks that we've benefited from, but one of them is this concept that we learned from John D. Martini of supporting each other inside of the differences of our, in our values. So making the assumption that it benefits me for me to support you in your values and vice versa has been really useful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of John D. Martini, when we first got married, we were using some of his advice on how to work with our finances. So these are very like practical ways that we kept money in certain buckets and we saved a particular type of money. So why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we can share more about the logistical ways that we initially started out working with money. Does that sound good? Sounds great. We hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break to let you know about a gift we created for you and your partner. We compiled our top 10 relationship agreements, agreements that have been so powerful in supporting the success of our partnership that we even turned them into our wedding vows. These agreements help us stay connected, growing, and thriving as a couple, and they've been critical to help us create a kind of we that's way beyond what we've ever experienced before. You can download this free gift at kristavanderveer.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-A-V-A-N-D-E-R-V-E-E-R.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, it would be so meaningful to us if you left us a rating and review. Not only does it help others find us, but it gives us critical feedback on how we're doing. Thanks in advance. And now back to the episode. Okay, welcome back. Before we move into the tactical financial ways that we have supported getting organized around our finances, I just want to double click on the importance of really taking the time that we need to take in order to process whatever we need to process so that we can each be full, in full alignment about these bigger financial decisions. I think that if we don't do that, then we are setting ourselves up to further down the line have ruptures and in some fashion we might attempt to sabotage the other person's success with that financial decision if that makes sense like if i didn't fully support your mastermind when an opportunity comes up to meet with somebody in the mastermind or an event comes up there might be a part of me that's like getting into an eye space and being like well now so now you're going to leave for another blah 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 and you're going to do this and you're not prioritizing the we it's just it feels like it feels like an unnecessary suffering if we're compromising to say yes to a decision that we're not fully aligned with. Definitely. Maybe another way to say it is building resentment that comes out later. And sometimes we don't even know that we compromised our position or, you know, that we didn't say the whole truth or have the whole conversation about getting aligned and we find out later So, totally, you know, I think we need to accept that that's also going to be part of being in relationship and, you know, clean that up when it comes up. Totally. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. And really making the commitment to not override that in ourselves of like, oh, shoot, there is something that I'm not fully aligned with, but to actually go and have the conversation as painful as it might be. Definitely. So let's get into some of these tactics that we learned and that we use as a way to organize ourselves around finances. Sounds great. 
So I think the first one, maybe the kind of macro overview is the reality that most people of a certain age, there's an age when you're able to earn money and then there's an age where you no longer can earn money or where you may be on a fixed income, whether it's social security or savings or investments or whatever. So one of the biggest pieces off the bat is to acknowledge that reality that we're not going to always be able to earn money. And then from there, we have to realize there's a certain lifestyle that we're going to be able to have later on, which if you're like most people is going to be a much different lifestyle from the lifestyle of someone earning a paycheck. So getting sober to the reality that there may be some years that we live where we are on a fixed income and that that lifestyle, if we don't plan for it, could be way more austere than the lifestyle we live now is a starting point. Yes, definitely. So then we get to play inside the realm of what kind of lifestyle, and when I say lifestyle, I'm talking about annual expenses, are we wanting to have now? And what kind of lifestyle do we want to have later? And then how do we plan through saving money and investing money to have a certain lifestyle later on that isn't just left to chance or left to outside circumstances dictating, you know, whether we live in a crappy nursing home or whether we live in a nicer place, let's say. Yeah. So when we first got together, we really took on John Martini's like method inside of this perspective that you're bringing of like, okay, there's all these factors to consider living now, living later, what that's going to look like. And we decided to try the method that he was suggesting in terms of saving for the future. Yeah. And this is a technique that Dr. Martini calls forced accelerated savings. So it doesn't matter what your situation is or where you're starting. This is um, one of the things I love about this strategy is it's very inclusive of anyone and everyone. And basically, the idea is that you start with saving a certain amount of money each month that's comfortable for you right now, whether it's $1 a month or $100 a month or whatever it is. And you commit to putting that money in a savings account every single month without fail. But let me just add one more thing, is that it's an automatic transfer. Right. Yeah, it's part of the magic of this methodology. It's like it just automatically goes into an account. You don't even get to move it or look at it or anything like that. That's really important. So every quarter you raise the amount by 10%. And so if you start with $5 a month, in the second quarter it's $5.50 a month, and so on. And it's automated, as Krista said. So this method is really interesting because it's kind of sub-perceptual. You know, you start with something that's comfortable, so it's not, it doesn't feel like a, a big stretch to increase by 10% per quarter. So the idea here is that you keep pushing yourself to save more money every quarter. And over time, this will have a huge impact on what your financial outlook is later on. 
Yeah, and we, we started with this. We started with this method. We call it our FAST account, F-A-S-T. I don't know what the T stands for. I know it's Forest Accelerated Savings. Technique, maybe? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we had an actual account that we labeled FAST. And then we had one other account, which is our immortality account, which is basically money that we have that will cover at least six months of our monthly expenses. And Will and I go between, this is one area where we're, we've had to negotiate. I prefer to err on the side of being even more safe and having more like 10 to 12 months in savings. And Will feels a little bit more comfortable with closer to six months. So we negotiate with each other to find a number that feels good to us, how many months that we want to have. So then we also have that account called Immortality Fund. And we don't touch that money. We just make sure that it's there in case there's a rainy day or a rainy season, kind of like when COVID hit. We were like, whoa, what's happening with the world <laughs> right now? Right. And the word immortality doesn't pertain to human immortality. It pertains to never touching that money. And so it's also important to say that we are following John Martini's perspective that you need to have that money in cash, basically. It, needs to, it can't be invested in an illiquid asset. And then it also provides an emotional function of security in your mind. Like if something bad happened to me and I couldn't work for three to six months, I would still be able to pay my bills. So that actually feels really good in my system. That was the first thing that we did was to build the immortality fund and leave it there. Yes. And I would say that these two things, let me know if you think of something else, Will, but having these two things in place really helped us to feel like we had our money organized in a way that we weren't just feeling like disorganized and we were spending money here and there. I mean, we did try to do, what's it called? That thing <laughs> where you like see where you're spending all the money. It's that app that some people use. <laughs> I'm forgetting what it is right now. Obviously it didn't serve us very well, but we also sit down on a monthly basis and look at where our money's at. We have it set up so that we really don't have to think about writing checks for utilities and bills. One perspective that John Martini has that I think that really makes a difference is the more organized you can have your finances, the more it seems like the energetics can flow in of like money coming and going rather than some sort of a chaotic mess where it's like, oh, oh no, it's the 15th of the month. I need to pay that mortgage. And you're like having to spend energy each month into literally writing checks to pay the bills. Now, this might be obvious for some people. For us at the time, it was kind of like we really had had to do a money cleanup to get all these things organized. And personally, mentally, it made just such a big difference in terms of my psychological outlook towards our finances. I agree. It's a really useful structure that reduces emotionality for us and probably has decreased the amount of ruptures that we would be having if we didn't do it that way. Totally. Yeah. And it does make it a little bit challenging. We're not on a fixed income because we're in a startup. So some months we might have a little bit more abundance. Other months we might have a lot less abundance. We kind of don't know what the landscape's going to be like. So it can be hard at times to have things be super automated with particular things. But we're making it work and we're doing the best that we can. And it also leads into decision-making around finances. 
Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, I really recommend Martini's trainings about how to organize your finances. And we're, we're just kind of scraping the surface here to share a few elements of getting started. There's so much depth there to look into. But one other principle that I think is really useful just as an overview is stratifying the risk of things that people do with their money. When you think about investing your money and getting at least some reward for having money sitting somewhere rather than just having it in a checking account where it's not getting any interest at all for you. Mm-hmm. And this is a kind of a basic point, but I think it's really illuminating is we need to think about how inflation decreases the value of cash that we hold. Mm-hmm. It's really important because if you think having X amount of dollars in the bank for your retirement is going to be X amount of dollars when you retire, unless you're retiring tomorrow, that amount of money is going to be worth a lot less. Mm -hmm. And right now, obviously, inflation is pretty high. But I think, I mean, just to illustrate a really easy point to get your head around, you know, the the price of homes in almost any location in the U.S. has, has gone way up just in the last five years. And to some degree, that's a reflection of what can you buy with your money, right? What kind of house can you get? It's dramatic how much less house you can get for the same money in the last five years. So planning for the future also means in incorporating that aspect of inflation and what's, right. what's it going to mean. And then there's a lot of people who have different opinions about how diverse your money is, like what are the different accounts, retirement accounts versus in, like full investment versus crypto. Like there's so many right. different methodologies that I don't think that we're going to go into recommending what we would have recommend because we're still figuring it out ourselves. Right. But again, just not to go too deep down the rabbit hole here, but one of the things I think is really wise about Martini's input about finances is starting very conservative, taking care of the immortality fund, continuing to accelerate savings at a certain point, becoming, earning the right to invest in an electronically traded fund or ETF you know, these emotional waves, like waves around cryptocurrency. And, you know, maybe your friend approaches you and says, hey, I've got this great investment idea. Those things are completely off the table for, you know, years and years down the road until you have taken care of these more basic needs in your financial world. So again, highly recommend going deeper into that with Martini's work. Gives you a flavor of some of the layers Yeah. And I just want to go, before we close here, I want to go into decision-making. So we talked a little bit about higher ticket items and which includes for us like travel, bucket list items, different things that we really want to partake in with a non-fixed income. It's really hard for us to plan in my experience to be like, okay, this fall we want to take the epic amazing trip to XYZ, you know, or we want to hit a bucket list item because we don't know what our financial landscape is going to be like this fall. And so it seems to me that we're doing kind of like a six week in advance decision about what the thing might be. So for example, our wedding anniversary is September 1st and we're starting to talk about what we want to be doing. And part of the conversation is, well, how much do we want to spend what feels more accurate in our systems based on where we are financially in the in our current landscape. And then I would say about six weeks in advance, we 
make a decision that's based on what the current reality seems like it's going to be in six weeks. Does that feel accurate to you? It does. And I agree with you that a variable income as a startup founder couple is not easy to navigate sometimes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the challenge of it. I wouldn't want it to be different. And it just, it's another component around our financial conversation. Definitely. So one of the fun koans that we're continually working with is the koan of not knowing when our lives are going to end. And inside of that not knowing what kind of approach to spending do we want to take. And it's just an interesting problem that's unsolvable. But, you know, to illustrate the point, you and I could live another 50 years. And we could also live another 50 minutes, you know, and within the not knowing of that, we want to, on the one hand, be prepared for our lives later on when we're spending money, but not making money. But at the same time, we don't want to deny ourselves the bucket list things and good food and, Mm -hmm. you know, living in an abundant way. So that balance is something that I think probably all couples think about. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but there's also this whole question of what are you wanting to do around inheritance or do you plan on passing money down to your children or to some charity or to a cause or whatever? You know, there's this huge spectrum of strategy around that where some people really don't believe in transferring wealth to the next generation. And there's, you know, good reasons not to do that, but there's also good reasons to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that also becomes a factor that couples need to think about. But I think that we're just continually walking that ridge of having experiences that we want to have while we're young and able-bodied and we can really enjoy some of the experiences that might be more expensive to have, but we also don't want to spend all our money while we're (laughs) hoping to live a long time. Right. And also, you know, with different people saying that the world's going to come to an end in five years or, you know, like whatever the whatever the different things that could totally happen, you know, where banks, the institutes all fall and crumble. And then, you know, like there's not even the money that we think that we have. Like there's so many different scenarios that could happen. I think it's it is this really intuitive and intelligent balance that we attempt to make in how we walk around spending and finances and hoping for the best. In all accounts. Yeah. yeah. So we'd love to hear from you, listener, how you're navigating these questions in your own life and please share them with us. How can they reach us, Krista? You can reach us at kristavanderbeer.com if you want to reach us personally, or you can leave us a message on your podcast platform under reviews. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. See ya. Thank you so much for joining us. If you found this content valuable, please follow this show and share it with your partner or other key collaborators. If this show has sparked an interesting conversation based on these topics, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Art of We Podcast. And we'll see you next time when we explore what it means to be better together, like butter and toast on the Art of We Podcast.